Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? It's time for a Tech Stuff Tidbits, and today I wanted to do a Tidbits episode about music streaming. Uh, Now, first off, music streaming is a huge topic. Uh, I could, could, and and I likely will do, at least one full episode devoted to it, but I thought I would do kind of a very high-level discussion of music streaming and its history. Now, this, by the way, was prompted by the recent news that fans of certain artists on the Death Row music label discovered that some of their favorite albums and songs seem to be disappearing from popular music streaming services like Spotify. And this coincides with Snoop Dogg's announcement that he wants to turn Death Row Records into the first major music label in the metaverse, and is turning it into an NFT-based music label. What all that means is a matter for another episode. But let's talk about what streaming is first. Essentially, it's all about accessing media in real time, and, you know, we could 
nitpick some nits here about that definition and the use of the phrase real time, but it gets across my meaning. So rather than say downloading a song to a device so that you can listen to it whenever you like, you use some sort of service. It might be an app, it might be built into a browser-based service, and you use that to listen to music streaming from a web server somewhere out there to your local device. It's kind of like radio, but it's done typically on demand and without using traditional over-the-air broadcast signals. Now, there are a lot of different places where we could start the history of this. For example, way back in 1993, which is when a lot of the population still didn't really understand what the heck the internet was. I mean, the, the World Wide Web was brand new. Well, back then you had the Internet Underground Music Archive, or IUMA. Uh, some students at the University of California, Santa Cruz, launched this organization to create essentially a database where independent artists could upload their music and get that music out to fans who otherwise might never discover those artists. So this was one of those very early demonstrations of how the internet can democratize content distribution and bypass the traditional model, which has massive media companies gatekeeping the whole thing. Uh, I, I acknowledge that as the employee of a massive media company, I I recognize the irony here. But yeah, like, you know, the, 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 it's hard to get discovered if you're a musician, particularly if you're independent. Um, I mean, it's one thing just to get discovered enough for a record label to be interested in you, but it's very hard to get your music out there. And a lot of independent artists didn't want to go the route of tr seeking out a record label or putting themselves out there again and again in the hopes that at one of their shows, someone from some record label happens to be there and they get whisked off and discovered because that happens to such a tiny fraction of all the musicians out there. The internet suddenly gave the potential for an artist to reach an audience without having to go through that other pathway. They wouldn't have to hope that some rep was in the audience and that that rep thought that the show was good. I mean, maybe it would be a bad show that night and that could totally scuttle your dreams. The internet represented a different way. That's what these students were trying to do. They were trying to create this opportunity for independent musicians. And uh, I actually find the whole thing particularly impressive because this was way before the MP3 format had really taken off. I mean, it was in development around that time, but it had not become the sort of default uh, audio file format for internet transfers. So we're talking about some files that were in other formats like WAV files or AIFF files. Those can be huge. Like those are really big files typically, uh, at least much larger than, say, MP3 files. So you also have to remember, this was back in the day when folks were using dial-up internet. You know, it was very slow or very narrow bandwidth, if you prefer. So again, this was not streaming. This was all about downloading files. However, it was a stepping stone toward the environment we find ourselves in today. Another big stepping stone was the development of Napster. In fact, a, a later service with the name of Napster 
would be associated with a streaming music service. But the original incarnation of Napster, which debuted in 1999, was that of a peer-to-peer file-sharing network with a focus on sharing music files. Not exclusively, but primarily. Now, by this time, the MP3 format was pretty firmly established, which was great because it allowed users to compress audio files down to a fraction of their raw size. That made it much easier to transfer those files over networks, plus they didn't take up as much space when you were storing them on, like, a hard drive. Of course, it would also uh, potentially affect the sound quality, depending upon the encoding settings you were using when you were encoding into MP3. If you were being particularly aggressive, then the sound file you got would sound pretty crappy. So, uh, anyway, that's something I've covered in other episodes, so I won't dwell on it here. So, peer-to-peer systems are not inherently wrong or illegal, but uh, it was impossible to deny the fact that the majority of the file transfer traffic across Napster was with copyrighted music files. Folks might use a computer to rip music files directly from a CD, so they might go to their CD collection, put the CDs into their optical drive on their computer, rip the music files off, and then convert them to MP3, store them on their computer, then move those music files into a Napster folder and make it available, shareable, so that others on the Napster peer-to-peer network can download them. Simultaneously, those users might be seeking out other music that's available on the Napster platform, you know, albums that they don't actually own. So Napster became a haven of music trading and theft. Uh, In some cases, folks were using it to find songs that you just couldn't easily find in other places, like bootleg albums or live recordings that were never, you know, uh, officially pressed, that kind of stuff. But a lot of people did it to, you know, get hold of songs or albums or an entire library without having to pay for it. And this happened to coincide with a dip in music sales, and that sent the recording industry in general into a frothy rage. Soon, Napster was the target of multiple lawsuits, some of which alleged that the platform had caused massive revenue losses. Now, I would say that this is an argument that's really impossible to support in any quantifiable way. Uh, I mean, it does make common sense that folks getting free access to music would hurt music sales. Like, that seems to follow. But I, I argue it's impossible to actually put a number on that. You can't definitively say, because of this, we missed out on X million dollars of revenue. Because you have no way of knowing how many of those people who stole music would have actually bought an album or single in the first place. I mean, they might have just gone without However, this was plenty enough for the music industry to go nuclear on not just Napster, but other services that offered similar features as Napster, stuff like Kazaa and LimeWire, and also folks who had been identified as using those services, like Sweet Little Grandmas and stuff. Yeah, the music industry started filing these massive lawsuits, like seeking hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages against like people that were very easy to sympathize with. So the music industry did not win over many fans uh, during this era where it was just going into berserker rage mode. And it was really, really ugly stuff. Now, Napster itself, at least in its original form, shut down by 2001. 
So the brightest stars burn out the fastest, I guess. Anyway, Napster is going to come back into this a little bit. So in the early 2000s, we saw the first emergence of legitimate digital music stores. Uh, These were mostly operated by the individual music labels, which was kind of a hassle. Like you had to, you know, hunt around to find digital downloads. Labels were more interested in still selling physical copies of media. So primarily CDs, like the cassette days were gone. Vinyl was pretty much extinct. Like it was very rare for people to produce music on vinyl during this era. That has changed. Like we've seen vinyl make a comeback over recent years, but in this early 2000s era, it was pretty much CDs that were the focus. And it would take a couple more years before we got the iTunes music store. That didn't launch until 2003. We had iTunes earlier, but the original version of iTunes wasn't a store. It was a way for you to be able to rip music from CDs and then transfer music to an iPod. So it wasn't a way to buy music. It was a way to get music from one medium onto another. Um, And honestly, the, the digital stores and the rise of iTunes music in particular was really a response to the problems that the industry had seen with services like Napster. It was saying, you know, part of the reason why this happened is because we don't have a legal, legitimate way for people to get hold of digital music. Now, initially, those stores didn't offer any streaming capabilities either. Customers would go to the stores, they would purchase specific songs or albums, then they would download those files to their computer and later other devices, but in the early days it was pretty much computers. And then you would use an actual physical cable to connect an MP3 player like an iPod to your computer. So you have a a physical cable that would go between them and you would transfer music over that way, which sounds like I'm talking about the Stone Age these days. All right, we've got more to say, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, let's get back into it. So as digital music stores were taking shape... You had a few different groups working on pieces of tech that collectively would allow for music streaming and uh, uh, more advanced features. One group created a streaming audio technology. Essentially, they created the protocols that would allow to stream music from one source out to, you know, clients, as in computers or other devices. They incorporated this technology into a music service called Tune2, that's T-O, Tune2.com, which was an online radio service. Meanwhile, they were also working on kind of an internal project that would allow for on-demand streaming audio with a concept they called Aladdin. Uh, This would be more like a jukebox where you have a library of music on a digital uh, service somewhere that you could access stre- and stream it directly. Instead of like listening to a radio station, you're listening to a playlist of, of music that you've curated. Now, in 2001, a company called Listen.com purchased Tune2.com, and Listen.com, meanwhile, also happened to own an online music directory that was fairly large. Didn't have the major labels attached to it, but a couple of independent labels and, and such, so... Pairing that Aladdin concept with the large music database, Listen.com created a new service that they called Rhapsody. And this would be the first streaming music service, and it launched very late in 2001. So to listen to Rhapsody, customers would have to fork over a monthly subscription fee. And over the following year, Rhapsody would build out their library further by making deals with major music labels. Now, the company Real Networks, would then go on to acquire Listen.com. This stuff happens a lot in tech, by the way, particularly during the early 2000s. You could go with the Phantom Menace approach of saying there's always a bigger fish. Now, Rhapsody was acquired by uh, Real Networks right around the time that the iTunes Music Store officially launched. And just to bring Napster back into this, much later in 2016, Rhapsody, which at that point was an independent company, it no longer was owned by real networks, would rebrand itself as Napster. There was no real connection to the peer-to-peer network from 1999 to 2001, but it did use the same name because the name had a lot of 
brand recognition power to it even a decade later. So uh, actually a decade and a half later. So we could say that streaming really got started in late 2001, early 2002. Uh, also in 2002, Last FM would introduce a feature that would become important for later streaming services like Pandora. And that feature would, uh, would track user activity. So what songs are the users gravitating toward? Like what, what kind of stuff are you listening to? And then this, this feature would then use that information to make recommendations of other music that that listener might not be aware of, but could potentially really like based upon their musical tendencies. Now, Pandora would take that concept and push it much harder, growing out of something that was called the Music Genome Project. And you probably heard me talk about metadata in the past. Metadata is information about information. And it's typically used so that machine systems can sort information more efficiently. Uh, for example, for every episode of Tech Stuff, I create metadata, and that includes stuff like a brief description of the episode, as well as a list of keywords that relate to the subject matter. And metadata helps computers contextualize content in some way. So if you go searching in the Tech Stuff archives for something specific, as long as I did my job correctly, the appropriate uh, uh, query results will pop up. So with songs, the Music Genome Project would break down a lot of the basic components of music in order to, quote-unquote, understand what that music was made up of. And it was actual human beings that were doing this work. It wasn't like artificial intelligence listening to music. It was real people. And so they would listen to music and they would start tagging songs. So you might tag a song with tags like female vocalist or up-tempo beat or long guitar solo, or whatever. And you might use as many tags as you can possibly think of that helps describe the music. The Pandora service would later use this to create dynamic playlists of music for listeners based on a seed song or artist. So you would go to Pandora, you would put in something to start off your station. You might use a specific song, or you might use a specific artist or musical group. And the Music Genome Project says, okay, what are some of the characteristics of that song or that particular artist that, you know, they typically use? And what similar artists and songs can I draw from to create a playlist that fits that same sort of model? It was and is pretty darn cool. Anyway, these features and similar ones designed to do pretty much the same thing, created the backbone for many streaming services. Of course, not all streaming services are dynamic playlists. Some follow more of a broadcast model. For example, I listen to the iHeartRadio Broadway station a lot. I know I work for iHeartRadio, but I also legitimately listen to that station. And that one is more like a streaming radio station, right? Like they, they have curated that on the back end. It's not dynamic. It's not switching things up just for me. But if I listen to something like my Pandora musical station, then I'm hearing music that is, at least in part, curated based upon whatever I use to seed that station. Of course, the tech side of streaming is just one tiny part of this. There's also the business side. That gets way more complicated. Like, as complex as the tech is, it doesn't even scratch the surface of the finance side. Generally speaking, there are a few different ways that artists make money through their music. Um, but let's think about artists getting paid through streaming media. Well, that's usually 
handled through royalties. Um, royalties are essentially a payment made to the rights owner of a particular work for the licensed use of that work. So you can get royalties from all sorts of stuff, like album sales can be lumped in with royalties, uh, radio airplay, the use of a song in television or movies or professional wrestler entrances, um, and you get paid based on that, a certain amount. Honestly, the way it really works is that the record label gets paid and then you get a percentage as an artist based upon your contract with that record label. And so it's just a fraction of the amount that's paid to the label itself. Let's say you get yourself an album. That album's available on Spotify. Well, first, Spotify generates revenue through subscriptions and such, and it takes a significant chunk out of that incoming revenue, around 30%. So the 70% that's left over goes into a pool that then gets divided up into all the other parties that are involved in getting your music out into the world. And that includes record labels and music publishers and ultimately you. And what this means is that by the time everyone else has taken their cut, there's very little left that's actually going to the artist. Uh, there are a lot of artists out there, you know, if they're not in the top, top, top tier, like if they're not mega superstars like Beyonce, they're getting paid pennies <laughs> for their music being played. Um, you know, and you could argue, well, they're getting a lot of recognition, but recognition don't pay the rent. And in a world where live performance is still pretty rare because of the pandemic and, you know, places are just now starting to, to change that, it's really tough for the vast majority of musical artists out there. Um, so streaming is one of those things that's potentially very good for the customer in the short term, possibly bad for the long term, just because the effect it actually has on artists, Right. Like if it gets to a point where artists have no financial interest in pursuing a career in music, you don't get art because people got to eat. So there's there's good and bad to streaming. Uh, there's been a lot of calls for streaming to change dramatically uh, in an effort to be more sustainable on the artist side. And we're also seeing slow upticks in the adoption of physical media. Vinyl has made a pretty big comeback. And again, I think that's partly to create a connection between the listener and the artist. But we're also seeing that with CDs these days. Whether or not that becomes a trend remains to be seen. I'm a little skeptical of that. But yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the, the quick, dirty version of what streaming is all about. Like I said, I'll have to do a full episode dedicated to the topic in the future. Uh, prob probably a couple, like one maybe really focusing on the tech and one maybe really focusing on the business side and its implications and how that's shaping the way we consume media and music. Uh, but I wanted to, to get that kind of out there simply because the Snoop Dogg story really got me thinking about it. Um, and I haven't even touched on stuff like the Web 3.0 metaverse or NFT side of the music industry, which is also something I'll have to cover in a future episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should tackle in either a tidbits episode or a full episode, anything like that, any suggestions for people I should have on the show, uh, anything along those lines, let me know. The best way to let me know is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 